Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 66. This is going to be the challenges in catching, repeatedly catching, northern snakeheads, scientifically known as Channa Argus, on the fly. This is from a recent talk I gave at the D.C. chapter of the Maryland Saltwater Sportsman Association, DCMSSA, and the benefit of Doing the podcast is, I just walked over here from the couch. It's like five steps. When I went to Bethesda, 21 miles took three hours and 10 minutes. So in this podcast, I'm going to basically go over why we're not repeatedly, regularly catching snakeheads. In the spring, when the shad are in, you know you're going to hook into shad. Left, right, left, right, boom, 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 shad. You know when the tides are right and the weather's right, you're going to get into stripers. You can get bluegill any day around here. You know you can get largemouth bass and some catfish. You know where you can find carp. But snakeheads, not something we can regularly do. Now, I could go off and just tell you right now, all the people I know that have caught a snakehead on a fly rod, myself, my client Brian, Jim, uh, let's see. Aiden has caught one. Nick has caught one. Uh, Trent has caught one. Who? Let's see. Morgan has caught one. All right, it's not that many people. As you can see, it's not something that regularly happens. So let's discuss what I'm going to talk about. And I may or may not, depending on my time, which is pretty limited, take the PowerPoint that I'm looking at and do like screen captures or upload it so you can see the images I'm talking about. 
Snakeheads, I'm going to talk about my background. Uh, why not? Snakehead local history, some background information on snakeheads, why snakeheads are freaks, the seasonality of snakeheads, locations and maps, that kind of screws you because this is audio, not visual, the challenges in fly fishing for them, the flies, and this new snakehead challenge. The snakehead challenge has always been you catch a snakehead on the fly, no foul hooks, no snagging, no flossing. Fish has to eat it. I buy you lunch and a beer. But that has changed, folks. It's so hard to catch snakeheads, in fact, I've updated the challenge. So my background, I'm a fly fishing guide and instructor. I do a podcast. You've obviously figured out because you downloaded this, you're streaming it. I guide in and around Washington, D.C. So we're talking urban fishing environments. Urban. You know, you were fishing under an overpass yesterday. Warm water species. We're not talking trout. There's no salmonids. There's no char. These are warm water fishes. I have a new boat, the Stealthcraft ATB. I personally have only landed three snakeheads. Only one client has landed a snakehead. And basically, what we're trying to do is figure out, we're going to crack the code, as people would say. Why is it we are not regularly catching snakeheads compared to my friend Potter, who's like, dude, I get them all the time. It's very different from spin fishing for these fish. Snakehead local history. The first time most of us had ever heard of snakeheads was when one was found in the Crofton Pond in Maryland in 2002. And we just passed Crofton today because I did an in-person podcast with Morgan from Tightline Tales. Now, this is interesting that they were first sort of discovered locally in 2002 because I took vertebrate zoology and ichthyology in college. And on my list from the mid-90s of all the freshwater and saltwater fishes found in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Channa Argus, the northern snakehead, was one of them. So I obviously knew about it in college, totally forgot about them, and then I heard about them in 2002, sitting at my uh, government contractor desk two blocks from the White House, where I sat all day surfing the internet and uh, doing nothing, because I didn't have much work then. So four of these snakeheads were dumped into Dogue Creek. That's D-O-G-U-E. If you just Google Mount Vernon, Virginia, it's the creek to the south of it. It's uh, a short, wide creek. called a chode. Uh, They have spread from the mouth of the Potomac, which is the Chesapeake Bay, all the way to the fall line, which is the Little Falls, which is where Maryland separates from D.C. on the Potomac. If you listen enough these podcasts, a lot of this you're going to hear uh, locations. That's Chain Bridge, basically, where we do a lot of our shad fishing. These snakeheads, and if this is your first time listening, you're going to want to go back to previous podcasts. A lot of this is just redundant, but I was asked to give a talk, and I thought I would do one on the challenges of catching snakeheads because my client the day before sight cast to a 17-pounder. The thing was monster. And it just looked at the fly and just went, yeah, right, swam off. So they spread other tributaries across the bay. We've interviewed DNR. And they said they found them, you know, across the Chesapeake Bay on the eastern shore. They found them up and around 
Philadelphia, but they're they're the ones up north are genetically diverse. So they're not derived from the four that were put in the here. So they may have spread across the bay. They're saline tolerant, which means originally they didn't think that these fish could tolerate salinity in water, salt. The Potomac in the tidal section is brackish. The closer you get to the bay and the more of a drought we have, the higher the salinity content of the Potomac River. That's when you start getting redfish and blue crabs up here. And if it keeps going, we get, you know, a thunderstorm maybe every other night right now. But other than that, it's pretty darn dry. The grass outside is brown and crunchy and it's what 92 degrees today. It's the World Cup final, by the way. So I'm trying to knock this out before I go over to my friend's homemade churrascaria. They grow larger, the snakeheads that is, here than they do in their native range, which is uh, about 20 pounds is the world record caught on tackle here in Virginia. There was a 17-pounder, which was shot by a bow at the tournament. That's how I guessed the one we saw was about 17 pounds. I was at the Thai grocery store up the street the other day. It's one great thing about living here in Annandale, Lincolnia. There are so many ethnic markets. So we went to the Thai one because I needed... Uh, I wanted her professional opinion on rice. We had to sit down and have, we had to talk about rice for a little bit with the owner. And I said something about snakeheads, pointing to my shirt. She's like, oh, we don't eat those. I know about those. We don't eat those in Thailand. She said they're too fibrous, um, too fibrous and too many teeth. And then the guy next to me had a whole thing of frozen snakeheads. So I guess they're eating giant or bullseye. That's what they serve at Dungrat's Thai Grocery store up the street. She said she's familiar with them and they're pretty big. So Thailand, uh, you know, Mongolia, China, parts of Russia. I had a client who saw farms of them in Sri Lanka. So Asia, Southeast Asia is where they're native to. Some background. Well, they grow several inches per year. These snakeheads can consume prey one third their size. Their mouth, which is designed to not let any prey out, their gums have like large mouth striped bass teeth, and then they have uh, fangs around their, um, you know, where like our teeth would be located around the mandible on the roof of their mouth. And then behind that, there's, I don't know what you would call these things. And of course, I'm going to show pictures here, but you can't see them. So just Google like uh, northern snakehead mouth should pop up and they have these kind of clearish white teeth maybe opaque and they're i mean they're fangs these things you know it's like a tiger shark the way they're curved and i've been looking up methods or how snakeheads feed and they basically suck in the prey hole and then their mouth closes and it doesn't allow anything out it's like the sarlacc from empire strikes uh, return of the jedi not Empire Strikes Back. They can survive out of water for several days. You pull them out. They secrete this mucus. And literally, you pull them out of the water and boom, it's like dripping with snot. So you always know a snakehead angler or snagger because they got trash bags with them. You cannot put these fish in a net and put them in the back of your car. You can't put them in a bucket because they're not going to fit. You can't just put them on a stringer. They have to be in a trash bag. These fish can breathe or sorry, breed up to three times per year, each time up to 100,000 brood per spawn. They guard their brood 
which means the majority of these fish are going to make it past the fingerling stage and probably grow up to be adults unless they get eaten by largemouth bass or blue channel, blue cats or birds. And again, it is a $250,000 fine for possessing a live snakehead. You're allowed to hold them, photograph them, but then they have to be either killed immediately or returned to the water. So in case you didn't hear me, that is dollar sign two five zero comma zero 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 point zero zero two hundred and fifty thousand dollars if you get caught with one. So folks, don't get caught with one. That has to do with the Lacey Act. Snakehead distribution, I have, um, wow, they're, they're pretty widespread. Every, from Norfolk, basically the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed, up to Susquehanna, up to New York. I don't know where I got this map from, but it shows the mid-Atlantic is basically everything but New Jersey. New York, Pennsylvania, West, nah, it creeps into West Virginia, but mostly Maryland and Virginia. And it goes everywhere from... It's basically the tidal sections. Nothing really past the Piedmont. Why snakeheads are freaky, you may ask. And the picture is me flipping the bird to an 18-inch snakehead in pickerel weed. Pickerel weed is a, it's a native plant, purple flowers. My client from Nebraska. We were going through this little like backwater you know, eddy at super high tide. I mean, the dock was underwater when we put the boat in. So it was exactly a month ago. We, today's the last night was the super moon. So it was the last full moon. We had a big rainstorm. So the water was up and high and the, these fish were in the weeds. We actually saw three in about 20 minutes, which for us, that's pretty fantastic. You don't normally see three snakeheads other than springtime that close together. They can survive bird strikes. So blue heron hits them with the beak. They're probably going to break the beak on that bird. Again, the mucus allows them to survive out of water. They can survive their gill removal. Initially, when these fish were first found, the DNR and Department of Game and Inland Fisheries stated to cut to kill them, cut their gills out, and throw them back in. They'll bleed to death. Well, if the bleeding stops, they don't require gills. They prefer to breathe atmospheric air rather than using their gills to get dissolved oxygen out of the water. And these fish are in some pretty dodgy spots, so it is you know more effective to get pure oxygen. They'll eat just about anything. I'm going to read you a quote later, but again, Chef Chad, he caught one that had a battery in its stomach. The one that my client Brian caught had styrofoam in its throat. If you're going to kill one with an aluminum fish killing bat from Bass Pro Shops, seven hits to kill one. It's the same sound as when we you know I demonstrate. What does a snakehead skull sound like? Well, you take that aluminum bat and you hit the parking lot. And it's like this. That's what it sounds like. It is loud. And then finally their skull just cracks. Few predators are going to eat them. The only thing that's going to eat them when they're large, according to DNR, is a blue catfish, which are as big as me. And then that mouth. So I've got pictures here of their mouth. It's They've got fangs like a weak fish. I mean, just nuts. You do not want to get your hand inside one of these mouths. You know, I, I've been bit by a lot of creatures. Snakehead is something I don't want to be bit by. Plus, these fish make eye contact. Every one of these pictures, that fish is looking at me. 
They come up to breathe. They look at you. When you catch them, they're looking at you. They're cognizant of what's going on. And they also have this very little head. Their eyes are maybe a couple centimeters behind their mouth. So they're, they're definitely like this ambush predator that are made to sit with their heads poking out, kind of like a bass, kind of like a, a northern pike. And then that, that mouth is just made to go up like a turtle, take a breath, and come back down. Seasonality. Where and when are you going to find these? Well, they quote-unquote arrive in spring when the water's in the low 60 degrees. So usually about two to three weeks after the first shad arrive. The snakeheads move up tributaries and the main stem of the Potomac to, I'll tell you in a moment. But they're going up there, and if, let's say they're in a pool and around some rocks and the tide drops, they can't get out. They will just torpedo themselves out and over the rocks. I've seen these things jump three, four feet in the air and probably six or seven feet laterally. They're like the Carl Lewis of fish. I've seen them jump over rapids like migrating salmon in Alaska in these movies. I've never seen it, but you know the places where the bears pick off the salmon? It's a place like that where the snakeheads are jumping up over rapids. Once they're spawning or whatever they're doing up there, they settle down back to the tributaries and they're back in the weeds. They like to spend time in that quiet water through the fall. Quiet water. Frog water. Do they burrow in the mud over winter? We're still not sure. They've only been in the river for 10 years. So it's very new. You know, The bass have been here since 1850s. We know all about the largemouth bass habits, but these fish have relatively newly uh, inhabited our river, so we don't still know everything about them. So let's talk about the pre-spawn or the spring run. Theories of why they're moving upriver. Is it uh, searching for possible nesting sites? And my research has showed that the males will sort of mow an area out of the weeds, the Eurasian milfoil, about the size of uh, a hula hoop. They'll actually, I guess, use their mouth and tear off the pieces and make a nest. In the springtime, you don't have the vegetation. I don't know where they're going to stick their eggs. So maybe they're looking for nesting sites, maybe not. They may be searching for mating partners. Every female that we've, every fish we've pulled out at Chain Bridge has been a female with an empty stomach but full of eggs. They could be searching for possible spawning locations. They're mostly gravid females full of eggs. Uh, Post spawn, they move back to the shallow coves and bays with uh, where the milfoil, spatterdock, and hydrilla will be growing. And the picture I'm showing is when I was shad fishing. And it's like 26 inch snakehead just came up right under my feet and was just sitting there. And I'm taking pictures of it with you know uh, my iPhone, and it's just like whatever, dude. I, I'm not scared of you. And then another next picture is another one right at my feet. Beautiful patterns. And there is sexual dimorphism between male and female. That means that between males and females, there's definite uh, difference in coloration uh, and the, the shapes and height of the fins. A lot of snaggers at Chain Bridge. So every time a snakehead comes up and we want to try and sight cast to it to dry and you know piss it off to eat like a clouser minnow or a, a curly tail or a reaper, the snaggers are going to get to them first. They just run up and just right in front of you. And there's some snagger pictures with big old treble hooks in their bellies. And then there's a picture of, I got one, my last snakehead, two months ago. Uh, There are six of them at the clear water of a creek. And they were just sitting there, and I had this huge, heavily weighted clouser I tied up the night before at the Tidal Potomac Rodders beer tie. And I had a sink tip, short leader, and I get this fly down, and I'm just it's just sitting there. 
kind of on the bottom, and I'm just twitching it. And this thing just snaps to the right, just pissed off at this fly. So I'd always said I wouldn't believe a snakehead eating a fly at Chainbridge unless I'd seen it. This is about as close to what I've always wanted to see up there. It snapped at it, and then my line started moving. So I set the hook. And this fish, I'm using a six weight, and it is screaming line off my reel. An old Orvis bat and kill reel. And I'm with a guide from Montana who, this is his first time fishing tidal water. He's never seen a striper. So he catches shad, white perch, striped bass, and a needlefish all within his first 10 minutes. And he'd never seen any of those before. And then he starts seeing the snakeheads. So he gets up here with the net and we land the fish hooked right in the side of the head. So when it went to swat or smack the fly or do whatever, it hooked itself. I consider that a fair, you know, fair bite. So locations, you want to find these niche spots where these fish are going to be found. This picture is a mostly bald man with rolled up jeans, barefoot in the river with a broom handle with like a giant fork duct taped to the end. So he was going to spear them. And every year their snagging materials become more evolved. So these are, we consider these fish lazy. They don't like the fast water. You don't see them out in the main, main current of the Potomac when they're migrating to spawn. They're following those side eddies up where the actual water is going upstream. They're going to be in different locations based on the tides. Uh, high tide, they're going to be right on the shore, sliding along those rocks in the eddies. They also might be um, at high tide in the bay areas, the lower creeks, the lower tidal waters. At high tide, they're going to be buried in the weeds. They're going to be back in the spatter dock. And then when the tide drops, they're going to move out to the center of the bay and the channels where the water is because at low tide, the water all drains out of these systems. And then they're going to hide basically where they can ambush prey. And all the ones we've seen recently have been right along the shoreline. We were unhooking. So my client was fishing a clouser. And I'm going to mention that clouser soon with a wormy dropper. And there's a overhanging tree in the water just on the surface. And, a, you know, like three foot of scum had caught in front of it. I was like, throw your fly in there. Throws it, strips it, boom. His line's going everywhere. Can't figure out what's going on. Finally, we realized he caught a 2.14 pound largemouth. And behind that on the dropper, he hooked a one pound yellow perch. I've never seen a yellow perch out of the river that big. Huge. So as we're untangling these and taking our fish pictures, gripping grins, 20-something inch snakehead just moseys right along. And we're in a tidal creek that's all sand bottom. It's maybe 30 feet wide where we are. This thing's just going up nonchalant. Like, it's blackish green and gold up against this almost white sandy bottom. I mean, it stuck out. Any osprey or bald eagle could have picked it off. But it's too effing big. Nothing's going to mess with it. So, of course, our hooks are all tangled up in the net and the fish when we are trying to actually catch snakeheads. Yeah, so where are they going to ambush prey? Where can these things hide out? You know, like I said, they're uh, they're like sketchy dudes in alleys. You know, where can a sketchy person hide that's going to mug you? Well, think of uh, a minnow and where it can get ambushed by predators. Specific locations. Heard these before. Chain Bridge, Four Mile Run, Rock Creek Mouth, Little Hunting Creek, Tidal Basin, and Roaches Run. Now, the tidal basin, they might be all over the place. My friend Andrew caught a 16-pounder there in a Senko worm a week after the snakehead tournament. But after high tide, these snakeheads congregate like crazy 
at the intake at Ohio Drive Bridge. Just sit there after the gates close and the water stops coming in. It becomes calm. They're going to be all over the place. Don't know why they like the spot. I've never caught one there. I've never had one seem interested except one that kind of just looked at my my bait fish fly. But yeah, you're going to find them there. Again, they were put in Doe Creek. We do the tournament at Mattawoman. They're all over Occoquan and Pohick Bay, Leesylvania State Park, and just... Pick a tidal creek anywhere around the D.C. metro area, uh, Anacostia, etc. They're going to be up in those spots. These maps are not going to help. Chain Bridge. Four-mile run. We saw one last week in the boat uh, hanging out again in pickerel weed. The second one was in a log jam under the Route 1 bridge. Massive. I mean, I thought it was a log until it moved. Rock Creek, you're going to fish by the House of Sweden. Watch out for the homeless guys on your back cast. Don't hook their tents or their clothes hanging up in the trees. Little Hunting Creek, you can put your kayak in at Riverside Park. They also will hang out on the shoreline there. Fletcher's Cove, again, the Tidal Basin. These spots I've talked about in the previous podcast. Cameron Run, which is the creek right below Wilson Bridge. Pohick Bay. Roaches run. Okay. Now, this is the meat and potatoes of the podcast, if you will. Oh, you will? Okay, thank you. Challenges in fly fishing for them. I'm comparing myself to conventional bass anglers. There are limitations in fly fishing. We know that. If you want to do a podcast comparing conventional fishing to fly fishing, it's going to name a lot of these things. The guys who catch them on the river are in glitter bass boats. Most of my colleagues, friends, clients, associates don't have, you know, kayaks maybe that fit in the your hatchback or a paddleboard. We don't have boats. We're shore and wade fishermen. So we can't get to these bays and and spots because you'd sink up to your armpits if you waded out there. So we're limited to the locations where these fish inhabit. We can't get to them. Fly casting, we have shorter casts. We can't throw 70 feet repeatedly. My client's 30, 40 feet, but when the tide is high, we just can't get a fly 70, 80 feet back into the spatter dock that's flooded like you can if you're throwing a chatterbait or a spro frog with conventional tackle. We're all so using lighter line, maybe a 12 to 14 pound tippet where these guys are using like 40 pound braided line, which doesn't break. If you foul hook spatter dock and yank on it to try and pop it out, you're going to snap your rod, which goes to the whole point about lack of truly weedless flies. Sure, there's uh, the bullfrog pattern that's out. There's, uh, it's like bully's bullfrog. There's the gutless frog. There's a couple other weedless frog patterns out there, but there's nothing that's like a spro frog or a scum frog. And I'm going to be at iCast in a couple of days and we'll be huge podcast people. Expect like epic length, epic gets. It's going to be great. I guarantee. But uh, yeah, so there's all these frogs out there for bath. If you just Google snakehead lure, it's going to be a weedless frog. Something that skips across the lilies and is impossible to snag. Well, we just don't have that really. It hasn't been developed. If it has, I'm not finding them. And uh, Trocar now has the frog hook. So I'm going to pick some up, hopefully, at iCast and try and make some weedless mouse flies. Uh, lighter line, the lack of boats. We also don't have electronics. We don't have fish finders. I guarantee your Patagonia waders don't have a fish finder built into them. 
We just figured out how to put zippers in our waders so we could urinate without having to take our waders off. You think we can find fish electronically? No. Though we are installing a hummingbird fish finder in my boat. So maybe that's going to give us a little bit of advantage. Our fly line, it's pretty heavy and thick and dense. It's going to splat on the water. When you are throwing very thin monofilament from a spinning rod or braided line, it lands on the water with just delicate, ephemeral, nothing. There's no sound to it. You know, we're throwing shooting heads if we're throwing spro frogs. That's some thick, heavy line or eight weight, nine weight lines. Big, beefy stuff that's going through the air. If they see it, they're probably going to get spooked. Our tippets also, they're just not heavy enough to pull a 15-pound fish out of the weeds. It's not going to happen. I want to start trading off some of my eight weights. I'm not going to mention the brands, but I want to start picking up some Temple Fork Outfitter mangrove rods. I also want for myself the Sage 2 bass rod. I need stiffer rods. It's also pretty darn windy out here. Lack of treble hooks. It's anybody can hook a fish that's got three sets of three hooks each that are laser sharp. I hate treble hooks. I brought a frog crankbait once to fifth grade to show to my friend Danny because that's all we did was talk fishing in fifth grade. And I dropped it on the carpet in uh, Sunrise Valley Elementary School and it was there for a long time. I think I just finally brought in pliers and just cut it out. Treble hooks are just nasty. They get caught on you, uh, your clothing, your boat. I don't know. I haven't used treble hooks in a long time, but I know they're nasty things. But when a fish bites, they're usually getting a hook not only in their mouth, but their gill plate under their head, on top of their head. So you've hooked them in multiple places that are most likely barbed. We're using single or two, if we're using the the frog hooks, two hooks at once. And still, that's a slight chance. You know, when we're fishing the tournament, we're still losing fish because we get blow-ups on top. We don't know what they are, but we're just not hooking them. Again, the snaggers get to them first. Another problem is at low tide, all the jet skis are bouncing around these bays and they're obnoxious. They're loud. My wife's wearing some really nice collapsible straw hat that we pulled out of the bay that someone lost on their jet ski a couple weeks ago. She wore it to the pool right now. I had to kick them out because I need to do my podcasting, but they're just loud and obnoxious and they make noise and we really can't just drift with the wind through a bay full of weeds casting blindly for these fish because there are jet skis going in and out everywhere with their wakes and their engines and i just despise jet skis furthermore the potomac river now the national park service is enforcing illegal wading anywhere in the river anywhere from harper's ferry mount vernon that's all government owned they want to enforce not that they don't they regulate the national parks on either side, but they want to outlaw any wading. We know one angler was fined last year for wading in the Potomac. Switch Fisher, who had the book Wading the Potomac River, Middle and Upper, he's yanked his books on the market. Can't sell them because it's illegal to, to, to wade now. So we're going to probably maybe fight that. Who knows? But now the limited places you can wade for snakeheads, you really might not want to go there. I'm not taking my clients there because I don't want to piss off the feds and lose my license to work on the river. Let's talk about the new boat. It is a Stealth Craft ATB all-terrain boat. The old boat, which we know was hit by a drunk driver right over here in Old Columbia Pike where it was parked on the shoulder, was aluminum. It was loud. If you dropped 
a woolly bugger. The whole boat made noise. This thing is quiet inside the boat. It's quiet when you're rowing it. It has headlights on the fore and aft. I can't really say bow and stern because you use the outboard. And when you're using the outboard, you have a distinct bow and stern. When you row, the bow becomes the stern and the stern becomes the bow. It's a 180. The layout is a lot better. We can walk around. There's a casting platform. It's designed for fly fishing, and hopefully it's going to help get us to more snake hitty spots. It also has rod holders built in, so we can have rods with multiple types of lines, leaders, tippets, and multiple flies rigged up and ready to go if you need to change them at an instant. I'm thinking about getting one of those uh, roto-molded coolers as another casting platform, but I'm not ready to shell out $250. That's probably what I could get one for with a discount as a guide. But I mean, seriously, I could just go to Home Depot and build a box for $250 or just get like a, a trunk from the thrift store. Somebody could stand on that and use it as a casting platform. All right, so what do snakeheads eat? This is a picture of a snakehead's gut cut open. I see a killifish and an eel and something else. So banded killifish, B-A-N-D-E-D, banded. Killifish, K I L I. F-I-S-H. It's a small, minnow-shaped, minnow-like bait fish pattern, about four inches long. The number one thing they find in their guts. They find white perch during the spring, herring and shad in the spring, bluegills, eels, batteries, other things. Now, my friend Andrew, I got this quote from him on a forum. I always check the stomach contents when cleaning them. I found a few large sunfish, some crayfish, a duckling, a mouse, a small muskrat, and a few frogs. Most often, though, I find large numbers of small bait fish, like killifish or dace, even in the larger ones. So what do our flies look like? Banded killifish. We'll get more to that later. So gear, eight weight. Uh, Again, I have TFO mangrove or sage bass rod. Weight floating line or shooting head. The only time I'd really use a sinking line for them, again, would be in fast-moving water, chain bridge, and the intake of the tidal basin. Everything else is mostly quiet water. Again, you're not going to usually find these fish in fast-flowing water, so you don't have to get down to them. Clear float tip would be awesome if you can get one. A long leader, we're trying to go for stealth, with a 12 to 14-pound tippet. I'm using Berkeley Vanish still. After 12, 13 years, that's still my go-to leader and tip material. Regardless that these fish have teeth, I've never heard of them cutting line. I do not use a bite guard or a wire leader. My hooks are going to be pretty damn sharp. Anytime one of my snakehead fly hooks gets caught in the oar, a tree, a stump, anything that could possibly dull it, nick it, or alter the shape of the hook, we are going to take it out reshape it, file it, or cut it, and use another one. Pretty damn sharp hooks. I'm not using, well, I use uh, Orvis bass hooks, which are laser sharp. I'll use uh, some Allen hooks. I've got some Trocars now, and then there's another brand I'll tell you in a minute. But I'm not using conventional bass hooks. I'm using what are called worm hooks. They're not made for tying flies. Uh, I don't know if I got the idea from Pat Ellers or not. And I'm really hoping to meet him 
down in Florida next week because uh, I fish a lot of his style flies. Got to have polarized glasses. Must, must, must. Absolutely. And if you're going to get polarized glasses, I'm telling you to go with uh, Costa Del Mar. Where to buy them? Oh, yeah. You can go to my Pro Guide Direct website and just type in my name. Just type in Snow White. You'll find my store. And I have all my favorite models and lenses all picked out ready for you to purchase. Oh, what do I get? Oh, I get commission when you buy through there. That helps pay for the podcast. So thanks. You want stealth? If you're waiting for them, no wake. You don't want to be making noise. Uh, it's not worth making noise. And, and the next podcast with Morgan, you're going to hear about carp and noise. But yeah, I mean, you're fishing for for something that's 20 pounds. It didn't grow that big by being stupid. Got to have a net. It's easier to net these things. They're not nice creatures. They do not want to be landed. I guarantee you, when you hook one, it wants nothing to do with you. You cannot get your hook out of its mouth. If it's hooked on the outside of the mouth, yes. If it's hooked on the inside of the mouth, you need pliers. I'm not talking Leatherman. I'm not talking hemostats. I'm talking like pliers and a vaginal speculum. You need to get that mouth open somehow and don't get your fingers caught in there. You need to kill them. If you're killing them to take them home, Killing them to give to somebody, use a big rock to bash their skull in, a club, or just sever their spinal column with a knife. Make it quick, make it painless. If you don't want the fish to see, sprinkle some sand over its eyes, and then it doesn't have to see you killing it. Flies. And look, there's a picture of a banded killie fish. It's a weird looking fish. It looks like General Akbar. Same exact flies I'm throwing for bass. My bass flies and my snakehead flies are almost indistinguishable i'm developing a lot of my flies to be more like conventional tackle more weed guards more rubber legs more jigging action to them so my my bass and snakehead jig flies are going to look more like what you'd be throwing out of a bass pro shops catalog on a bait caster my worm flies are getting bigger uh, to be more like eels and worms uh, my clouser minnows are going to be about four inches long I am using, uh, what am I using? Super hair. I'm using super and I'm blending them. So the benefit of super hair is you can cut clear, cut a little bit of gold, a little bit of brown, a couple of turquoise, rub it in your fingers, and you can blend them to get the nice, kind of bluish, olivey, golden, brownish top of a banded killifish. And then I use clear for the bottom and gold crystal flash in the middle. I'm not too keen on the eye color. They have gold eyes. You can go get like gold painted eyes from Orvis. Uh, I'm just using whatever I have. I use black thread. And the last ones were tied on gamakatsu hooks because they're sharp. You don't want your flies too loud and impact. If we're fishing skinny water, we're not using lead eyes. We are using bead chain. We don't want a big splash. You want your flies to be quiet, non-spooky. I want to start throwing some clouser, like floating minnows, some crease flies, some other things that are just, you know, nice and, and delicate and soft on impact. Got to have weedless. If you're fishing the estuaries, weedless, weedless, weedless. I use craft wire and I make a bend back. There's some nice YouTube tutorials on weedless flies, and I've been playing around with those. I don't do the loop, I don't do the prong. I do, uh, I do the one that goes from the nose around the back. 
I like the curly tails. I like motion, curly tails, uh, reaper or leech tails. And then topwater frogs, topwater floating mice, my scorpion bugs. We had one snakehead come up and look at a scorpion bug and saw us and turned on a dime and swam away. So my non-fly hooks, VMC, fast grip, wide gap, worm hook, valerium steel? I can't tell. I think it's valerium steel. Uh, Size one knot, 15 pieces. I get them at Kmart. I get them at Dick's. They're sharp. They're nice. They're strong. Smash that barb down. So my worm flies, I call them the Snallygaster. Snallygaster is a mythological Potomac River monster that steals children and eats them. You're going to have to just, I guess, go to the website and look. Uh, The Reapers, I said. I caught a huge bass on one recently. The other day, I lost one on somebody's anchor line on a moored boat. kind of pissed me off. My scorpion bug, it's foam rubber legs with super hair for the tail. Super clousers, again, it's synthetic hair that I can use to blend, and they're all the same size as a killifish, four and a half, four inches long. The great thing about super hair is you can cut it, and it doesn't lose its shape. If you cut bucktail, it's not going to look the same. My foam splat rat mice, my curly tails, and if you want to get the curly tails, and the Reaper Tales, you can get them from easterntrophies.com, I believe, is William's website. They are laser-cut ultra suede. I, I find it cheaper just to get them from him than having to cut them myself. And then there's this crazy-looking fly that was at the TFO booth at Somerset. I can't even describe what it is, but it looks like it'll just skate across lily pads. The new Snakehead Challenge. All right, we're wrapping this up, folks. The next client to catch a snakehead is not required to pay for their trip. So if they want to pay me, awesome. If not, it's okay, and I'll refund their deposit. Fish has to eat the fly. No foul hooking, no snagging, no flossing. Has to be legitimate, sporting, and a key word I like to use in fly fishing is ethical. If you have any questions, shoot me an email, rob at robsnowwhite.com. I'll try and get some of this up on the blog. Thank you for producer Jason for doing this. I'm going to try and get this out before I go to Florida. I'm on social media. Jason's on social media. All of our links are at robsnowwhite.com or freestonemedia. That's freestone-media.com. Thank you for listening to this, and we are going to start working on a sponsor for the podcast stay tuned thank you for downloading we are well on our way to 200 episodes take care y'all thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast for more information or to contact rob please go to www.robsnowwhite.com Speaking of cheesy voices, if I had a co-podcaster and we wanted to be like wacky morning DJ guys, we would be Chuck and Duck in the morning. How about how about that for podcaster radio DJs? Chuck and Duck. Yeah. All right. Let's get on with this.